let me ask a question. How many are from the... Uh, it's on. Uh, how, many are you, how many of you are from the uh, boomer generation or, or believe you are? Okay, this is your panel. You lived through it. Uh, how many of you are from the, uh, let's say, the, the uh, Generation X? Oh. <laughs> you were born when these panelists were doing their job and developing the mole program. So, and I won't ask about the rest of the, of the generations. Uh, as a, a preliminary, let me just say the National Reconnaissance Office uh, is one of the uh, major intelligence organizations and is responsible for the collection of intelligence uh, at the national level, essentially from space today. And back in the Cold War, that was a different environment. You would not have heard someone admit that they were at the National Reconnaissance Office. In fact, all of these individuals who were on the crew and in the program were told, don't talk to the press, don't talk to the public, because this is a deep secret. And the National Reconnaissance Office is in the process, and tomorrow on the webpage, and for those of you who are here, uh, when you leave, there's a compendium of the documents that have been declassified. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, at the end. But I've asked our, our panelists to have a conversation among themselves. I have some seed questions to start them off. But let me just give you their names. You can identify who they are. I'll go in alphabetical order. And they're not sitting in alphabetical order. <laughs> they never were to follow uh, the... Uh, there's uh, Colonel Carol Bobko. There's <laughs> Colonel Al Cruz. <laughs> Captain Bob Crippen. <laughs> Vice Admiral Richard Truly. And Dr. Michael Yemerovich. So here you have the technical director for the program and the astronauts who were in the program. Uh, there are several um, astronauts who are not with us uh, tonight for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I think Admiral Truly might want to uh, make note of, uh, of that. Yes, thank you. Is this all? Okay, thank you very much. <clears throat> yeah, there, the, uh, there are only four of us here, but there were a total of 15 crew uh, selected for the program at one time or another. And I just thought I would go quick. We decided that we would start off by going quickly through uh, through the names 
And since at the time I was the junior officer in the group, uh, I was chosen. Uh, Mike Adams uh, later left the program and later killed in X-15. Al Cruz is here. Jack Finley uh, left the program in the 60s, made six tours on Yankee Stadium to Vietnam. Uh, Dick Lawyer, uh, U.S. Air Force, is deceased. Mag McClay uh, lives in Colorado Springs. And I'm not sure about this, but I think perhaps some of Mag's family is here. And if you are, I'd like, I'd like to meet you. Uh, Greg Newbeck uh, yeah. lives in Florida. Jim Taylor, uh, after the program was killed in a T-38, myself, Bo Bobco and Bob Crippen are here, uh, Hank Hartsfield, uh, U.S. Air Force, uh, flew several shuttle flights, deceased, Gordo Fullerton uh, also flew shuttle flights and was a... Uh, heavy airplane test pilot at Dryden uh, at Edwards. Bob Overmeyer, uh, U.S. Marine Corps, uh, killed testing a uh, light airplane. Uh, Jim Abramson, uh, later uh, a lieutenant general and uh, uh, program director of Star Wars at the SDI program. <coughs> Bob Harries uh, retired as a four-star general, first vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and uh, later chairman of USAA. Bob Lawrence, killed in a uh, F-104, was the first African-American uh, astronaut at either NASA or in the military, and uh, Don Peterson, who couldn't be here tonight. But uh, we just wanted to make sure you knew that there was a lot more than us uh, in the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dick, you, met, you, you mentioned some of the people and what they did, but you didn't talk about your own things after uh, after you're right. <laughs> I told you they didn't follow the rules. Uh, before we get started, and we'll come back to that question. Uh, before we get started, I, I want to make two comments and, and then ask the NRO historian to kind of uh, set the stage so they were all on the, the common script. Uh, some may wonder, why are we discussing the Dorian program, the NRO's Dorian program, when it never became operational? Uh, well, the fact is that, yes, it did not become operational, but it was an investment by the National Reconnaissance Office and the intelligence community and the Department of Defense in, in a technology program that had spin-offs in space as well as in national reconnaissance. A lot of the future NRO 
activities are really dependent and derived from the technologies that this program developed. But probably more important is the investment in the people. And, and you heard the names of, of all of the astronauts. There were others that were involved in the program also that developed experience, gained insight, and later in their career, it paid off. And that's where we're going to have to come back uh, to you, Admiral Truly, to uh, kind of at some point uh, share with us. <laughs> You're not going to escape that. But before we, we turn to the panel, um, it's probably helpful for the NRO historian to give you a quick summary and overview of the historical context of what we're talking about. James? Well, good evening. Um, it's great to be with you uh, this evening, and I know the focus is really to listen uh, to these uh, fine gentlemen. Uh, but I want to give, to give just a very brief historical overview of what was going on uh, that allowed us to uh, get here. Time often allows for facts uh, to be distorted or forgotten. But history allows us the opportunity uh, to rediscover and recover facts. And that's what we're going to attempt to do tonight as we talk about the legacy of this particular program and the contributions that it made. It was born in an environment where we had multiple challenges, one of which was uh, the set of challenges that came from the Cold War. We lived in an era where, uh, or this program grew in an era where there were vast parts of the world that we just could not obtain information about what our adversaries were up to. We had little or no access, not maps, not telephone books, uh, no cell phones, uh, no internet, uh, and no ability in many ways to understand what those adversaries were up to. It was an era where the stakes had increased dramatically because of the atomic and later thermonuclear threats that emerged with the advent of uh, our adversaries, the Soviet Union and others, having uh, thermonuclear weapons. We had an inability to understand what we in intelligence call leadership intentions. What were our adversaries up to? Uh, we could not easily see what was occurring in the country that would give us indicators of what they were up to. And there was a kind of competition of the highest consequences, a competition of ideologies. Should we continue in the direction that we had continued traditionally in this country, or should we take a new direction, sort of a legacy that came out of the 1930s? Also, there was a healthy exuberance uh, for space exploration and exploitation. Man's space flight was the new frontier, the new horizon for us to move forward, uh, kind of a continuation of our manifest destiny that uh, we had declared many, many decades earlier. There was a race to be the first to the moon, uh, an extension of this competition could we get there. There was a recognition that space could be used as a vantage point, a new way to uh, find out information, a new way to continue to defend the interests of the country and a new vantage point to allow the country to continue to th thrive. And then there was a question of how do we defend this vantage point to assure that we were not put at a national strategy disadvantage. It was an era of tremendous emerging technologies, uh, communications, 
faster, better, cheaper. We hear that quite often today, but we really see the emergence of, of communications technology and an emphasis on this. Space, for the first time, becomes critical for the advancement of our ability as humans, and we've been trying to communicate as humans ever since our advent. Space, for the first time, became critical for further advancement of communication. Optics, the ability to not only see but capture that world around us. Developments in material sciences that allowed us to have much, much more dramatic improvements in the ability to have optics. Electronics and computing, we were moving into a miniaturized world where we could compute faster, we could process faster, we could obtain information in a much, much more sophisticated fashion. And then finally, an extension of technology as a defensive resource. How do we use this to assure that we continue to advance as a, as a nation? And there's a fourth area where we saw historical challenges and changes occurring, and that was in our societal, uh, our societal changes. Vietnam, of course, emerges from the 1960s as the predominant societal change. But as history goes back and reflects on it, it's a, it's, it emerges towards the end of that decade, with so much occurring earlier in the decade before Vietnam shaped perceptions of the change. There's always a, a question of did we begin to reject traditional values? Maybe so, maybe not, but we continue to seek after that ability to uh, defend the nation. Equality emerges as a predominant value of change. And finally, demographics. Uh, for the first time, those baby boomers that Dr. McDonald uh, identified amongst you, you emerge into society and have an opportunity to shape your own, uh, your own destiny. In many ways, the manned orbiting laboratory is uh, consistent with, these in, with the intrinsic American desire to expand our horizons. Um, this is juxtaposed against uh, an environment where we have a most uh, pressing threat to American interests, but also the most abundant means to continue to defend the nation and protect the nation's interests. And it's against this backdrop that these gentlemen agreed to participate in this uh, tremendous program. And we hope that we will be able to uh, reveal a little bit more tonight about the facts of that program and allow us to rec recapture those facts that surround them. So back over to you, Bob. Thank you. We can begin our discussion, but as I pointed out, uh, the astronauts are always full of surprises, and General Abramson has joined us uh, at, at the table. Uh, to kind of uh, start us off, uh, we all know that the uh, Air Force leadership at the time were looking for the best, the brightest, the most experienced. And that's how they selected you. If, if each of you could uh, say a little bit about how you came to be a part of the program and then what did the experience of the program lead to in the rest of, of your career? So. Who wants to start? <laughs> well, I'll go ahead and pick it up, Bob. Uh, Thank you. The, um, I was attending 
that was one of the Navy pilots that got lost and ended up at the Air Force Test Pilot School out at uh, Edwards Air Force Base. And uh, while I was a student there, uh, the both NASA and the Air Force or the military announced that they wanted to select some more astronauts. Well, just prior to that, uh, the manned orbiting laboratory first crew in containing uh, Richard Truly and Al Cruz over here had been announced. So I was aware of the program, although I knew it was very classified. But it, even though it was mostly an Air Force program, they called it a Department of Defense program and they included a few of us Navy guys and eventually even one Marine. Um, <laughs> I wanted to get in one of them, so I applied for both. And eventually I'm working my way down the selection. Uh, the Navy told me I had to pick one or the other. Uh, this was in 1965, and we hadn't even got to the moon yet. We were in the Gemini program, but uh, you could tell things were going to be tight, and I figured NASA had more astronauts than they knew what to do with. So I figured, well, my best chance of flying is to uh, go with the military program. So I elected to go with MOL and uh, was fortunate enough to be selected on that. Richard? And, and then after the Oh, program? well, after... Uh, it got canceled on June 10th of 1969, a date that will live in my memory for a long time, which was one of the low points in my life. Uh, but uh, one thing led to another, and my friend Bo Bobko down here asked, why don't we ask if NASA can use any of us? Uh, we poo-pooed the idea, but uh, you learn you don't always know the answer. And one thing led to another, and uh, NASA made a decision. A gentleman by the name of George Miller, and George just passed away this week. He's 97 years old. He was the AA for the Office of Space Flight. He ended up telling Deke Slayton, you got to pick some of them, even though Deke didn't want any of us. Uh, <laughs> and he made an arbitrary decision to say, okay, I'll take everybody 35 and younger, and I ended up on the lucky side of that. Well, my story is uh, not dissimilar to Cripps. I was... Uh, uh, Navy pilot along with Jack Finley in test pilot school. Uh, Chuck Yeager was the commandant of the school. And uh, toward the end of that year, uh, we noticed that Yeager kept going to Washington. And we we knew something was going on, but but we didn't know what. And it turned out that they were having the first astronaut selection for MOL, and they didn't bother asking us if we wanted to be in the pot. <laughs> there were only, I think, 85 graduates at the time of the Air Force's Aerospace Research Pilot School, and they just assumed it, all those guys want to be an astronaut. <laughs> uh, and so... They eventually narrowed it down to 15 people, and I was in that group. And then they later uh, narrowed it down to eight. And uh, and uh, but then uh, there wasn't a program. This was 1964. The program hadn't been funded yet. It took took till the fall of the next year. That we uh, and this is the only only the second press conference in my life I've ever been to discussing MOL. <laughs> but the reason I remember that day it was my 28th birthday, and uh, they announced the first eight, uh, uh, first group of eight. Al was the senior, and 
and so I was in the program, and I never applied. Uh, and then, and then with Crip on uh, after Black Tuesday when it was canceled, uh, NASA took the seven youngest, and I was the only one out of that original group that was still young enough to be the seven youngest. So they took me. So I never applied again. So I'm the <laughs> only person that has ever flown in space that never applied. <laughs> on okay is it okay i'm not an astronaut didn't apply for it. well i did apply but i didn't make it <laughs> well in the meantime just get back in time a little bit 1960 gary powers gets shot down we have no way of looking behind the iron curtain so a year later 61 nro gets formed to take pictures well, uh, the Apollo program gets started at the same time. Just imagine how things were going very quickly. In 1962, I uh, uh, get called to get into uh, Washington. I was working for a company uh, in, in the Northeast, an AFCO Corporation. How would you like to go and uh, work with uh, the MO, for, for the MO, no, uh, Apollo program? Of course, Joe Shea invited me and made me assistant director of flight systems. And I was 28 years old. As a matter of fact, everybody else was that same age. <laughs> the old man, Joe Shea, he was all of 33. And we were a whole bunch of young kids, full of enthusiasm, worked day and night, didn't sleep, and produced a power. Because... We knew, didn't know better that it couldn't be done. We just did it. And George Miller was the guiding light. He just passed away. But at the same time, while Apollo was being developed, lunar landing program, well, we've got to do something with this hardware. We've got to do something about Earth orbit. And how about, in the meantime, Gemini keeps coming along. So why don't we figure out some tasks to do in Earth orbit? Uh, Apollo applications comes along, Gemini flights are coming along, and the Soviet Union is really, really getting to be a threat to us. So some uh, of my friends here get asked to uh, participate in this new classified program. And I get asked, just as a kid, one of the kids, to be the technical director of this program in the deep third sub-basement of the Pentagon. Couldn't breathe the word, uh, the word that we are using now. As a matter of fact, I'm having a hard time pronouncing it now. <laughs> it's just built into the Earth system. But we were doing something that's exciting and important. Not only were we now adding to the concept of manned spaceflight, which was the big thing in, the, in Apollo, but we are going to do also something very important for national security. We're going to go look behind the Iron Curtain. Nobody saw anything once uh, the airplanes got shut down. So uh, this got to be the, the most exciting 
place in your young life. Defend the nation while doing the exciting things of man's space flight. And that was the beginning. Okay. I, uh, in case you hadn't noticed, uh, I was the old man of the group, and I think I'm still the old man. <laughs> and part of my job before we got selected for astronauts, I was working at the test pilot school, and I flew with all these guys at least a little bit. And uh, oh, I'm sorry. You hear me now? Yes. Well, anyway, I worked with them uh, flying and uh, couldn't tell them a hell of a lot because they were pretty good pilots. But occasionally I could find a little bit of a glitch they did, and I told it to them. And so, speaking of glitches, the Admiral just made a small glitch because he said, we had 15 people, and we had 17. But he, he talked about all 17 of them, so that absolves it. Uh, I had one other good item on them. I, I was selected for the X-20 dinosaur program. I was the youngest guy on it, and then that program got caught by the politicians uh, and our, our program was going to live if President Kennedy had lived. But 14 days after he died, the program was canceled. And it's hard to believe you can learn enough technical stuff in that time to change a program. But we had a couple of people that didn't like it. <coughs> um we got on down, went to work at Los Angeles, and uh, most each guy had a particular area he was responsible for, and they all followed each of them. And I was kind of, maybe I wasn't smart enough to do that, but I kind of watched over the, all the programs if I could, and I enjoyed it very much. And... Uh, Admiral McDonald mentioned uh, sorry, when you get old you lose your train of thought. Also. <laughs> but I enjoyed uh, working with the guys very much and when the program canceled then me and uh, four, five other guys uh, four other guys were too old and I I went to NASA as a non-astronaut and uh, felt bad a little while, but I got to work on the, worked in the uh, engineering office when they selected the shuttle contractor. And then uh, after that was done, I moved back to aircraft ops because I'd never had a non-flying job before. And I think I'm the only one of the group that worked for the government 50 years. And I enjoyed every bit of it. I got into the program, at least myself mentally, quite a bit before the MOL was announced. 
I was at the Air Force Academy in the late 50s, and we had a lot of instructors who were our instructors, but not only were they our instructors, they were going to be taking over departments. So they were very experienced. And so during that time, they were saying, man's future is in space, and that, uh, that you guys are going to be astronauts. And the seed was planted in my mind. And so every time I had the opportunity of doing something that would take me closer to being in space, I always took it. And so when, like, the MOL was announced, I was, that was just great. And, of course, it was wonderful when I got selected and terrible when the program was canceled. Uh, beef. One, two. Is that okay? okay. Thank you. Um, I, first, a couple of comments. Uh, if you want to get somewhere on time, fly Air Force. <laughs> Not one of the airlines, at least not in this era. The second, I think that there's uh, some uh, things that kind of need to be explained, obviously, and this whole effort is a celebration, but also There were times that uh, the press got interested in the manned orbiting laboratory, and they would call various people that had been associated with it, uh, and they would say, we want to do some interviews. And I had one of those situations, so I said, you know, I don't know what the classification status is. So I went to the NRO history office. I went to... Uh, security offices all over the place, and nobody knew what the status of the clearances were at that point in time. Uh, and so uh, I participated much to the chagrin of this particular um, reporter by saying, I can't comment on that. I can't comment on that. I can't comment on that. And he said, what can you say? <laughs> Are we declassified now or not? Yeah. <laughs> it's all in here. Uh, the secret is out. Terrific. Although there are a few secrets that we're still retaining. <laughs> well, I was part of the last group. Uh, and it was a great privilege as we went through several stages uh, that were very highly competitive. But to imagine that some of us would be selected and join this terrific group of people. Uh, and, uh, and four of us were. Uh, and, uh, and we were absolutely thrilled. But we, just like the program was highly classified. Nobody told us a whole bunch of things about this program. Uh, and uh, an example of that is that nobody said that this program is in deep competition with non-manned activities. 
And interestingly enough, those non-manned activities now have been declassified before the man. <laughs> that may have something to do with our performance here. <laughs> I'm not sure. But unfortunately, when the program was canceled, uh, I was three months past the deadline. So I was the youngest of the two oldest <laughs> kind of situation. I went to NASA. I talked to everybody. I said, three months. Surely you can slip this a little bit. Uh, and they said, well, there's a bunch of other guys that are just a little bit beyond that as well. So nobody would allow me uh, to do that. But I, but I did have the honor and the privilege of being asked later uh, to take over on the second flight of the space shuttle and to be the associate administrator uh, that was managing those next flights. Uh, and I learned some lessons. Uh, and lessons that might have made a difference in the manned orbiting laboratory from NASA. But one of the big lessons that we really learned in the manned orbiting laboratory, and that was we started to have a cost overrun. That's not surprising. Most of the programs, if they have any degree of risk or if they have any serious degree of challenging the kind of uh, uh, the edge of, of technology here uh, have such things happen. And the astronauts, all of us, had the privilege uh, that the program manager at that time, General Blameyer, uh, would come and talk to us and would say, what, what strategy should he, the program manager, take in the Congress and with the Air Force uh, as, as they go by and try to deal with this overrun. And we, the first time it happened, we all overwhelmingly said, we are going to be operational the first crack out of the bag. And that caused then, that philosophy, the program to slip nearly a year. The next year, we had the same situation. We voted the same way, and the program strategy was that. And the lesson I learned, and have applied since in other programs, is if you can just get an empty tin can up there, do it. <laughs> because then you can build on it. And of course, that was the way that NASA went to the moon. That was the way they helped create the space shuttle and the International Space Station and all these wonderful things. But the strategy with the Congress was the biggest risk, not the technical challenge and not what we were going to do. And I will say that while the unmanned systems, for lots of reasons, the advance of technology, did indeed win the race, there was part of the race that has never been fully examined, fully exploited, and that's that 
And I'm not sure this was a formal selection criteria for the astronauts. We had a job to do there that was a mixture of human judgment being exercised at a speed and a rate and with importance at a level that has never been fully looked at in any experiment that I know about, where the humans are working with the machine and adding their uh, ability to make things judgments about, in this case, target. Uh, and but you, uh, to fully appreciate that, you have to read the book. <laughs> so I urge everybody, read the book and understand the experiment and learn the lesson that I think we all learned. Even if I was three months too old. <laughs> <laughs> Now you see why I asked you about your generation. Very important. <laughs> Even three months. The, um, the Dorian program the, uh, was very typical of a National Reconnaissance Office program in that it was imaginative, it was challenging, it was, it was uh, new. Uh, question for you uh, is what experiences, what recollections do you have uh, that you might want to uh, share on how you dealt with some of the more challenging things that, that you faced? What, what recollections? And while you're thinking of the answer and who's going to take it first, uh, you might, uh, we might try to reduce the, uh, the feedback is when you're not using the microphone, turn it off. And when you are using it, turn it on and hold it close. And we'll try to see if that reduces the feedback. So uh, here we go. Share some of the memorable experiences that you had in preparing for and training to be astronauts in the MOLE program. What did you encounter? What, what was most memorable? Who wants to try first? <laughs> I'll try something. Uh, is that on? It, um, it doesn't really get into the Dorian part of the program so much, but uh, we were going to be the first humans flying on a vehicle using solid rockets. And uh, that had never been done before. Uh, we were flying a Titan III that was modified, to, and the version was a Titan 3M. And the solid rockets had... A, you can't shut down a solid rocket. So the, if you had a problem with them, we had these blowout plugs up at the top of them that would come off to negate the thrust. And it left a very small window to, for the crew to abort in. And I sort of put together a simulation uh, down at uh, Chance Vought in Dallas uh, where we were going through and uh, bringing crew members in and flying that profile, putting malfunctions in, and seeing if we could get off in time, and uh, everybody that we brought in could do it. So, other memorable experiences in dealing with the challenge. Um, I, I would like to uh, go right to the heart of the Dorian 
uh, program with uh, challenges, and it's something that Abe uh, mentioned. You know, you ha you have to uh, to think about what we were trying to do. First of all, you have to put yourself in the 1960s, as far as the threat and the what Mike talked about, and the level of technology. Uh, no person owned a computer. Only governments owned computers or big companies that the government bought for them. Uh, and we were trying not just to design a computer program to do a job, but to figure out a very complex uh, human interaction with the, with the automated system that would have made it, uh, we believed, and, and I still believe, it would have made it, uh, uh, particularly for a film system, it would have made, made it uh, far better than uh, it, it could be done strictly as an automated system. We would essentially never waste a film on cloud cover, we would make sure that <clears throat> we uh, uh, took a picture when there was something important to take a picture of, and every variation in between. It was a very complex problem that I believe we did solve, but only shortly before Black Tuesday, when after all the slips and cost overruns uh, and other things going on, uh, uh, cancel the program. But it was uh, it, it was not a trivial thing that we were working on, and and I, and frankly, I don't know how that later played into any advancements in later programs. Uh, but it was a challenge to us. And we were all in our 20s, <laughs> except for Al. He was in his 30s. Well, I was 40. When it canceled. <laughs> and uh, so when you're that age, uh, that was a big delta. And now, uh, Forty years later, uh, it's half as much a delta. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, well, I lived through one cancellation, and I never did get over it. I'm still not over it. And then it didn't surprise me a lot when we started getting into money problems and all those kind of things. But... Uh, I got the stories of what the unmanned system was doing at the time we were selected. And then I got the story of what the unmanned was doing about two years before we were canceled. And I was of the opinion that we weren't going to do a hell of a lot better than that. And I'd go around to visit contractors and see the nice new big buildings they were building and other people tell me we didn't have any money so I assumed that all those buildings were going to support something else and I don't know 
any facts about it, but I think that was true. But overall, I enjoyed the program very much. I was involved with uh, what was talked about with the solid rocket motors because I was on the safety committee and uh, that was an interesting situation because we had uh, they used what they called a pop-off. So the Gemini rockets fired into the void between the rockets and the laboratory and caused the pressure, which then caused the Gemini to pop off so it wouldn't get uh, be exploded with the rest of the stack as it went by. So that was, uh, and I think it was Dick who talked about it, or maybe Bob who talked about having the, the, uh, uh, having the simulation to do that. Uh, but there were... A lot of things that I think came are looked at with the shuttle as well, because the shuttle, just like the MOL, did not have a capability to get away from those solid rocket motors. I think that's I I had worked on the uh, the flight control system and the propulsion system, and uh, you know I felt that the astronaut's duty was to be the operational oriented person who was on the committee uh, or on the group that was designing these things to make sure that the crew operations were certainly thought about and talked about by everybody to make sure the crew was adequately adequately uh, uh, able to do what they were planning to do. Can't think of anything else? Well, I'll just go back and add a little bit to this. Uh, as I think you can probably understand, it is really hard to suddenly slip out of all of this classification that's been built into your, into your psyche for all these years, even though th there are things that are absolutely inexplicable right near where these gentlemen were. Uh, there is this great big building, uh, and it, it has a big sign in front of it that says, the National Reconnaissance Office. And the first lesson that Al Cruz <laughs> gave to me when, I, when we were brought in was, you never even use the initials N-R-O. <laughs> So, so it is a little hard to adjust. But uh, let me build on what you said. Uh, imagine now a Soviet target was an airfield, maybe a place where they were doing flight testing. And that might have uh, airplanes running up like you see here at, or at uh, operational bases uh, doing ground testing or airplanes getting ready to take off, specialized airplanes, uh, or other kinds of uh, specialized music, uh, munitions going, being brought out on trucks and loaded under the air, aircraft. And if you have a camera that is not so such high resolution, you can probably get a picture of the whole airbase. 
And then the analysts would really go after that and see what can they see. But if they didn't have the resolution, they couldn't make many of the kinds of measurements or the things that, that you really need to get to. So when the manned orbiting laboratory began to build a camera, remember it's a film camera, but a camera that is going to be so precise that it's like looking down a soda straw. Then the next question is, when you're coming over in orbit so fast, uh, which of the things that are happening on that base do you want to make the picture of? Because you'll probably only be able to look at one, maybe two. And that was where the astronauts looking through less able systems were supposed to use judgment and training and to say, look here, not here. Don't waste the pass here. Uh, and, and when you're coming so fast and you know that the speed of that camera maybe could only get three out of eight or ten targets that you wanted to look at, that was this task where we were going to try to add human judgment uh, to this automated capability. Uh, and and uh, there are a lot of other places where human beings are doing interesting and testing and work. But I still, and maybe somebody else up here knows that, maybe some of the people uh, uh, from the NRO, but other places. But um, that was a real challenge. We couldn't even build a simulator right away that would allow you to test and train in that concept. And while each of us had special jobs, uh, somehow or other I ended up with building that simulator as my responsibility so that we could all train. And uh, I probably never looked through a telescope before in my life. <laughs> I have a question for Admiral Truly. Uh, with regard to your survival training, and in particular in the water, isn't there something about hand signals in survival training that you experienced? Is he talking about when I almost drowned? <laughs> Maybe you could share that with us. Well, I'm not sure what you're talking about, but it may be that when I almost drowned in water, or actually not drowned, uh, we were down at Homestead in water survival, and uh, uh, we were in full pressure suits, and uh, it, it's a long story, but a mistake was made. I take full responsibility for it, but I, I, I had the help help of a suit tech in making that mistake. But there was a rubber dam around the you know that had a zipper and and so and a little valve in the side of the helmet. 
And uh, so basically, if the if the zipper was closed, the amount of volume in the helmet when you tried to take a breath, if you were in a raft or something, uh, it would open the valve. You'd take a breath. You'd exhale. It would go out. If the zipper wasn't closed, you were breathing to the volume of your the entire pressure suit, and it wasn't enough delta P to trigger the valve. At any rate... <clears throat> The zipper uh, got in the water. The zipper wasn't closed, and uh, I began to suffocate with a rescue boat maybe as close as the second or third row. And I I thought I was going to die. And I started waving at the boat, and they waved back. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, oh, and also the, 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 the mechanism on the faceplate was jammed, and I couldn't open the faceplate. <laughs> At any rate, I lived, and, uh, but it was, uh, it's, in all the flying I've ever come, that, that's as close as I ever came. Richard, uh, I've got a break. I'm sorry, I'd like go ahead. To comment. I was sort of be the boss of the outfit, and uh, either I can't remember that long or I was never told. <laughs> well, Al, there's some discussion of whether that happened on MOL or happened on Space Shuttle. I think it was on the shuttle, if I recall. I, I, I thought it was, too. <laughs> but, but it still happened. It, uh, <laughs> But speaking of drowning, I've got to tell you about a survival trip uh, that most of the crew took uh, for jungle survival, uh, where we all went down to Panama, where the Air Force had a, a jungle survival school. And uh, the deal was they took you out in the middle of the jungle, gave you a little equipment like you would normally be carrying in our uh, MOL uh, Gemini thing, if we'd actually had to bail out somewhere. And they tossed you out in the jungle, and uh, you survived for about a week. Al was our chief cook, if I remember. The only problem was uh, somebody shot a toucan, and he made toucan soup, but he used the same pan to uh, do coffee in in the morning. And I'll tell you, that's the worst time of year. But we had one crew member, Hank Hartsfield, good friend who's no longer with us, that uh, at that time he could not swim. And the way they took us out, after the week out surviving was uh, we all jumped in the river with uh, our life rafts and what have you, and, uh, and we floated down the river to this Indian village. The only problem was while we were in the river, they had this big rainstorm upstream, and the river rose about 10 feet while we were in it. And it was a torrent and it was <laughs> waterfalls, and it was really bad. And, and Hank went over this one waterfall, which we were all having problems with, getting tied into whirlpool, and he didn't come up. He had a, he had a, one of the guards or one of the guides down there was, uh, was with him. It was supposed to be falling, but he lost him. And Hank ended up coming up, thank God, about 100 yards downstream. He popped up uh, 
but I really thought we lost him. That uh, that's the only other terrible drowning incident that I can remember. Bo, you remember that? In that, in that same Chagres River episode, yeah. right? Gordon Fullerton and I were the two guys that each had a raft full of equipment, and so when we went through some of these whirlpools, everybody else went down underneath and then came up. We stayed on top around the whirlpool and went around and around. <laughs> Finally, Gordo and I are both hanging on to the side of the, of the rock wall, and Gordo says to me, he says, I don't think this is survival practice anymore. <laughs> so we looked around, and we saw this big dead limb out over the, <clears throat> over the stream. So we climbed out over the dead limb, and just as we got to the end, the, the, whip, the limb broke. <laughs> put us right back through again. <laughs> Finally, what we did was we cut the rafts loose and sent them downstream. And my understanding was when the two rafts came downstream without going to a bow, everybody was wondering, uh-oh, what happened to those two guys? So that was the other Chagras trip, that, at least the one that I remember. Any other memorable recollections at this point? We Let me. Our crew and I won't point names, but we all had hammocks that were strung between the trees, and he started snoring on one end, and you could see the vibrations go all the way. Down. <laughs> I have uh, one uh, last question before we have a short break, and it it was kind of touched on in some of your comments uh, earlier, and this is about the security. Um, it, it, it was, uh, uh, as we've said before, a highly protective security program. Uh, caution not even to mention the words of the organization that I won't mention right now. Uh, how did you deal with the public aspect? Because Mole, there was a public story about, the, about Mole, but everything else was compartmented and, and protected. How did you deal with that in your daily lives? How did you deal with your family? How did you just deal with it? Well, since I don't have any astronaut stories to tell, let me talk about this one. <laughs> um, well, first of all, you have to understand today's the world is different than it was then. It was really, really a national security situation. We were very, very concerned about the Soviet Union dropping bombs at us, atomic bombs. So uh, uh, security was paramount. Besides, um, we didn't know whether the Russians would really react to the presence of a man in space. Uh, so, uh, as a matter of fact, if you think about it, NASA was born in the concept of being a civilian agency. There's no other agency in the world that does, if, if has this uniqueness of being just civilian. Most agencies, certainly in, in the Soviet Union, they work together. So here, this is a civilian agency, and yet some of us who are now thinking about what we're going to do with uh, Apollo after we get through the landings, um, we have some national security things to do. So how do we tell NASA? The NASA guys, hey, we're doing something secret. 
And then, of course, the smart guys say, well, by the way, uh, why are you doing this, this stuff on the, on the West Coast? What's wrong with building everything out of the Cape Canaveral? Well, as you know, there is a uh, azimuth uh, restrictions. You, yeah, if you want to f overfly Canada, you can, but that was not a very cool thing to do. So we're going into out of Vandenberg, go south, and all for polar orbits. The NASA guys, the scientists, just couldn't figure it out. What are you doing? And so there was this question: Why are you going this? Well, we did this because uh, we have to have bases on both sides of, of the Atlant of, 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 of the United States, and, and somehow it worked out. Well, so it, I had this privilege of being the technical director in the Pentagon, and so uh, I actually, would you believe it or not, I was uh, detailed to the MOL office as a civilian, while in the meantime, the Apollo program had brought in Sam Phillips and 60 other Air Force officers to help manage uh, the Apollo program. Management was a big problem. And, uh, and th we needed this experience of systems engineers from, from the Air Force. Well, so General Schriever calls up that there's, there was an agreement between McNamara and Webb, the, the so-called Webb-McNamara agreement, and it actually was written both directions. So there are 60 officers coming this way, and who comes the other way? So one guy <laughs> was selected to go work the other way. So I'm carrying a NASA badge and getting into this uh, third sub-basement of the Pentagon trying to figure out how to do security. And my job was extremely complicated. I have to go back and forth to the, to the President's Scientific Advisory Committee, to, uh, to the President, to uh, NASA administrators, to uh, all sorts of back. Of course, some of the very top guys were uh, briefed into the programs, so uh, that worked. But keeping that boundary between the very top management, and most of, uh, very few of them were killed, and the rest of them was a very difficult job. Uh, so uh, uh, management is actually, uh, after Abe's uh, point, management is the key feature that made us uh, successful. George Miller with his concept of uh, all-up testing, just imagine the guts of putting the entire Saturn V together all at once and then lighting the fuse to the whole thing, all at once, not in stages. Brenda von Braun was going berserk over that idea. We couldn't have made the schedule with that. So you have to take risks, but you have to know what you're doing. And so I'm always admiring those people who have the talent and the leadership abilities to pull it off. And rather than cover themselves with stacks and stacks of paper that gets us nowhere. Bob, uh, to your question, I'll also comment. Um, you know, we had contractors that uh, when we went to visit, uh, we certainly did not appear as military. We could not tell our wives or family where we were going. We would tell them we're going to be gone approximately so long. If you know, if you got an emergency or something like that, they could call our office and talk to the secretary or somebody there, and they could get in touch with us. But uh, you didn't re reveal the contractors we were dealing with at that time. 
Any other uh, observations on security? in two worlds. Yeah. If I would just go up to Samso every day to work, that would have been easier to explain. I'm going to Samso than when, you, when your face is in the paper and people ask you, well, what does this mean? Well, I, did, I did it on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> I had a few times uh, family and other close friends asking me, so I was just um, uh, we're in a space program and we're not allowed to talk about ours. And NASA has a space program that's open, and we can pretty much do things the same way they do. <laughs> so watch them. <laughs> Any other uh, last-minute observations on the security? Thank you. Okay. Time for part two. Uh, part two will try to focus the questions on lessons, uh, lessons that, that they learned uh, either in their, for their career development or for future programs. And I have as a starting question for each one of them to respond to. And we're going to try a different uh, protocol with the, uh, with the microphone. Uh, like any technical program, it's uh, trial and, and, and error. And eventually you get there. Uh, they're going to use one microphone. We're going to leave it on so they can't uh, share any more secrets. You'll hear everything. And they're going to pass the microphone up and down the line. They're going to keep it. Uh, how did those experiences shape your future career? Okay. What did you learn that influenced your behavior later in the career, and how did they shape your career, the lessons that you learned? So who's going to take it first? The microphone is in the middle. Right? Right. <laughs> All these technical geniuses here, and nobody knows how, how to use a microphone. Uh, let's see. Um, first of all, the dilemma with the classified side of this we've talked about, and keeping information quiet and, and not doing that. And if I contrast with that what I truly learned later, at NASA running the space shuttle and working again with all these terrific people, um, I was in the middle of that when President Reagan announced that he had wanted to start a defense against ballistic missiles. Uh, and later on, I was 
again had the honor to be selected to be his first program director for that. Now, what, what, what lesson in all of this keeping everything quiet to, or most, or most, thank you, keeping everything mostly quiet, or the open method that NASA has used throughout the years in all of their programs. Uh, when I went over and uh, was interviewed by President Reagan for that job, uh, he, he was just a delight, and he spent most of the interview telling me what I was supposed to do. <laughs> but and the, at the end, I said, uh, sir, I have learned at NASA and in other programs the importance of being sufficiently open so that you have real credibility in the media and in the other, uh, out with the public, the taxpayers. That's where it really counts. Uh, and this is going to be, I'm talking about SDI now, of course, that this is going to be one of the most difficult programs because, of course, it was so controversial. Uh, and I said that I propose, if you will agree, that we run this as open as is absolutely possible, except where it is necessary to keep it highly classified. And, of course, there were elements of that that, that couldn't or shouldn't uh, be talked about at all. And the president said, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want you to do. And then he said, and I want you to get out and talk about it. Because, <laughs> and because he said, if you don't talk about it right, he said, uh, he said, I know, meaning him, Reagan, I know exactly what I want and why the nation needs it. And if you don't talk about it, then I won't have a program, you won't have a program, and the nation won't have a program. Sorry. Yes, sir. <laughs> I think I learned a little about systems engineering and to make sure that there is communication because to have a good system engineering activity, you need a lot of communications between people. Uh, that was a little more difficult in the... Uh, in the MOL uh, because things were restricted, as we've all said. Uh, and I try to take that into the things that we did with the shuttle, uh, such as with the testing, et cetera, uh, to make sure that we got the best product that we could. I never got a real big job after I left, but I, I got a job that I loved flying airplanes, but I did work two years before that in the shuttle engineering office and helped pick the shuttle design. And uh, anyway, and probably not a nice thing to say, but I, I was kind of amazed at uh, the work that was done in picking the program, and I realized a lot of things that go on, but the contractor that built the, made the presentation that looked just like the shuttle that flew 
was a different contractor than the one they picked, and they picked the one that had no model at all, but I guess they had the right uh, support financially and those kind of things because they did a very good job with it. I guess the question is uh, the management challenges of uh, dealing with the uh, this classified program. Of course, oh, the NRO was opened before MOL, and the NRO was driven to do reconnaissance, taking pictures um, in a highly classified way. Now, you cannot really hide men in space. Uh, as long as, uh, of course, f at first you do, but later on when they start flying, you, you, you have this. So um, how do you protect the security? The MOL program actually was both black and white. The things that we could do and talk about, we did. We just didn't use the code names. Uh, but the most sacred part of the whole thing was uh, was the camera, and that was totally uh, managed in a separate way, um, with occasional dialogue between General Schriever and General Martin, uh, which uh, uh, General Schriever was much more driven to uh, uh, an open Air Force that did things both classified and unclassified. Uh, whereas uh, the, the CIA, obviously, by its own birthright, is uh, secretive. So uh, it was quite a challenge to do things, but we are uh, very much mindful of the fact that we did a lot of things very much in the open. And uh, well, the things that sit there in front, that, that gadget's been sitting on my desk for, for decades. So... Uh, we could have talked about it, except what was inside. And so it, it was managed. Management is a big issue. General Schriever was a magician that made things happen in the Air Force with the ICBM program and, and carried on with the MOL. Uh, his counterpart, George Miller, really the genius who made Apollo happen. I'm, I'm quite convinced us if it weren't for George, we would have not made it to the moon, certainly not on the, on the schedule. So these two guys worked together, and they both knew what they were doing. They were both uh, supporting NASA on one hand, as, as public as public, uh, possible, and yet they knew what we could do for national security. And so we can work it. Uh, the thing that made everything happen well is the uh, minimal amount of paperwork. Nowadays, you're brown, drowning in systems engineering documentation that's driving everybody crazy. And, uh, of course, it pr protects you from responsibility. Uh, and these days, um, responsibility just was right there at the front of the, of the leader. And he had to do it uh, without paper just with his personality and, and the good people that he's surrounding him. And that's the magic that somehow, I don't think nowadays we could put together the Apollo program again. Uh, 
we would have too many cooks, too many people asking questions, too many people having second thoughts, and most importantly, when too many people going home at 5 o'clock, we were doing this, we were barely sleeping. We were dedicated. And this doesn't seem to happen these days. Uh, this one is a tough one for me because I'm not sure I can, in my own career I can uh, uh, point a cause and effect. But I will say this. When uh, I was in, the, in my 20s when I joined MOL, and prior to that I had been a fleet uh, pilot along with CRIP. And uh, when the program was opened up to me, it was stunning that it was almost magic that, that there could be a program so large, so complex, so expensive that was being managed absolutely invisibly to the public. Uh, I... MOL, the few years that I was on MOL, uh, I was introduced to some great leaders, both in Washington, who I didn't know as well as I did out in Los Angeles. Uh, and then when the program was canceled, uh, we, those of us who went to NASA, uh, were thrust into the opposite NASA worked as hard to get publicity as the NRO in those days made sure that they didn't. And uh, uh, and then I worked Apollo Skylab, Apollo Soyuz, and early shuttle. And then I left, and that was the first time that I was really thrust into uh, what I would say, uh, senior leadership role, but but I did. I I was uh, first commander of space uh, naval space command. I was jerked out of that job at the Challenger accident, and I was responsible for the investigation and return to flight. Then I was NASA administrator, and I was comfortable by that time. I don't know where I got the lessons, but I I was totally comfortable in those roles because of MOL and and in some way uh, the combination of the differences between the way MOL was run and the way NASA was run. Uh, I I don't know what you learned from that, but that was the experience I had. Well, uh, they've all said it's on the similar tax. I'll uh, give you a couple of specifics. Uh, first, uh, you know, I was like Richard. I was 28 when I was selected for that program as a young kid, and I remember uh, going to one contractor working on unclassified stuff. It was actually Douglas. They were building the workshop for this thing, and we we were going over the nomenclature that we were going to use on the on the panels in the vehicle, and we had to. Uh, 
because the words get along sometimes, you had to use some abbreviations. So myself and this uh, employee from uh, Boeing were sitting there arguing about what abbreviations for certain terminology. And he finally turned to me and he said, young man, this vehicle is going to spend a lot more time on the ground in tests than it is in flight, so it ought to be my way instead of your way. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, but he finally came around to see the light. It, that was it. <laughs> and there was the other part. Uh, we as crewmen worked with the contractors, but we didn't have any direction authority. We weren't the program managers. We couldn't write out a change order. But you had to work with them to get things such that the crew could use it. And, uh, and that learning that process uh, served me well uh, later in, uh, in life and in various places. Uh, the other part that I, uh, I learned is that it, it gets done by the people doing the job. Management is extremely important, but the people bending the hardware, doing the designs, those are the people that make it happen, and you have to pay attention to them. And if they've got something to say, you need to hear it, whether it's bad news or good news. And I use that fact a lot later in life. Let's explore the question of um, industry-government interaction. Uh, you just mentioned a little bit about it. Uh, it. It seems that the Mole and the Dorian program uh, required a lot of dialogue with uh, with industry, and government industry had to be talking and talking effectively. How do you see the mold experience shaping later interactions between government and industry in the space and reconnaissance area? The big thing I noted was when I first got on MOL, and I don't remember seeing it at all when I was on Dinosaur, but on MOL, they had uh, each contractor had a big, large group of people. One of them was engineering and Another one was manufacturing, and then, I mean, anyway, and each one of them had a lot of people working for them. Uh, when General Blameyer came and took over our program, he decided that the unit that was mostly psychologists and psychiatrists didn't need to be working because the other people could do the job. And he, he just got rid of them. And it wasn't very long that NASA did the same thing. And I don't know if that part of the industry has recovered yet or not. My, my question was, uh, the uh, program required a lot of collaboration with, with industry. How did the experience and the insight from the dialogue that took place in the mole program, how do you think that may have shaped the future interactions between government and industry in, in the business? Or, or did it not? 
It certainly, or at least from our standpoint. I'm not sure I'm following you exactly, Bob, but, you know, from our standpoint, we really didn't go work reconnaissance programs after MOL was canceled. So I'm not sure how it influenced that. It did give us the experience to deal with the contractors like on Skylab. I went to work directly on Skylab after MOL was canceled, and the same contractor, Douglas, was doing the workshop. We were using the same computer that we were going to be using on MOL. In fact, I think the potty was the same potty. So that experience carried well over. I knew what we were working. But at least it taught me the proper ways to work with the contractor as a crew person, which is not the same as being in the program office. It is different. You know, John Young and I, before we flew that first flight, we went around to every contractor, touched as many hands as we could to let them know that our butts were going to be tied on that thing, and we wanted it to work. And it worked. Any other observations on that? Let me ask a final question in this phase. Working on the program, what was your greatest surprise? The thing that you did not anticipate that you had to encounter, and how did you deal with that surprise? Each one of you faced some surprise that you did not expect. What was that, and how did you deal with it? My greatest surprise was that it existed. I mean, no kidding. I mean, we had four contractors, one of which was, I mean, major contractors. McDonnell, Douglas, later McDonnell Douglas, General Electric, and Eastman Kodak. Kodak was invisible. They didn't exist. And yet the program managed that. Of course, the program got canceled, but that was not because of that. I was marveled that the government could pull off what was right before my very eyes. Tell them about your first visit to Kodak. Yeah. My first, I was just telling Crim, my first visit to Rochester to Eastman Kodak, they said the standard things, don't use your military ID, use your driver's license. And they said, stay in this hotel, and next door there's a little breakfast place. Go have breakfast at 7 o'clock. A redheaded guy is going to come in and sit down and have breakfast with you. Go with him. And that's a true story, and I did, and it turned out all right. Any other surprises? Well, a surprise, but not a surprise. The MOL program 
for, uh, for about the last year, but certainly the last half year of the program, it was really, really stumbling. It was uh, having budget problems. It was having uh, schedule problems. And there was a new administration. Uh, Nixon came in office. Uh, a new team came in. And they started questioning. Obviously, you had to ask all the same old questions. What are you doing? What, what did you do this for? So, um, uh, so it's not a surprise. Um, the way it was, the cancellation that was handled was really very, very surprising. You know, we, uh, one day we kept, went to the office. I was actually on, on the Hill uh, involved with some testimony and uh, classified. And next thing I know, somebody taps me on the shoulder and says the program got canceled. No. Mr. Chairman, may I have a word with you? <laughs> Not a good day. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, it was expected. I mean, after all, things were. Vietnam War was was raging. Uh, the Air Force was up to their eyeballs and in, uh, in, in uh, airplanes flying things. This was an air war. Big, big air war. What all this astronaut stuff? Go, go away. And that was the mood of the country at that time. Anyone else with the surprise they want to share? I'd like to turn your question just a little bit. Um, we've been here talking about what was a, a program that represented a massive attempt to do something different. Uh, and and I think we've all enjoyed it, and we hope that you have as well. I'd like to get some understanding of you and your programs, if you don't mind. Uh, could How many people are here still working at the Mother Church who are in this audience? Would you put your hands up? Well, Not that. The Mother Church, I assume they still call Wright Patterson the Mother Church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How many uh, are former people who have worked on challenges here at Wright Pat and maybe are either contractors now or retired? Quite a few. How many are contractors who uh, have previously or now are support, supported uh, the Air Force mission as it's being conducted here and, and enabled here? Great. We're talking about the lessons that we're learning and we've learned from one program. But a good percentage of this audience could be telling us about the lessons that you have been learning and how you're applying them in important programs that are reaching out in the same way as this program reached out. And I think that for all of us, uh, and, I, and you can obviously speak for yourself, would like to say thank you to all this group of people who are so 
worked so hard over, I'm sure, a, a whole career here in this area. It was a proud moment for me when I had that opportunity to do that. Okay, we're ready to move into the third phase of the evening, and that's to, uh, in a very uh, uh, structured sort of way, uh, announce that we're going to be releasing tonight and posted on the NRO webpage tomorrow this compendium of Dorian documents that have never been declassified before. I should point out that uh, we have some number of these compendiums uh, when you leave available for, for pickup. Uh, I've been told that um, we had a larger audience than anticipated and would uh, one a compendium to the family. For those of you who don't get a copy and still want it, it will be available in PDF form on the NRO uh, webpage. And the NRO links are on your program. Uh, at this point, I'd like to ask uh, Ms. Uh, Patty Camarisi to come up here and join me. She's the uh, chief of the NRO Information Review and Release Group at the NRO. And she and her staff were the ones who poured through uh, many, many, many pages, uh, some 22,000 pages, to make sure it could be declassified and available to you and others in the public. And I've asked her to say a few words about that uh, and let you know the work that went through to produce this. Thank you, Bob. Um, yes, my office is the Information Review and Release Group at the NRO, and we're responsible for handling all of the um, requests that come in from the public under you know, mandatory programs like the Freedom of Information Act, the Privacy Act, um, mandatory declassification review programs. But one of our um, major programs is called Systematic Declassification Review, and this Moldorian effort was one of those um, SDRs, we call them. And I'd like to introduce Scott Swisher, who was largely responsible for the um, coordination of this from start to finish. Declassification, review, and release is a very complicated process. And in this case, it took over a year um, to get all of the stakeholders involved, to get them to agree to declassification of additional uh, material, and then to do the actual line-by-line -line review. Um, I'd like to turn it over to Scott now so that he can uh, say a few words about the effort and maybe thank a few of our um, stakeholders for their thank contributions. You, thank you. Well, thanks, Patty. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to start off by uh, thanking our panel members. We discussed in very vague terms upstairs those few important items that we are still withholding from the general public regarding the uh, Dorian part of the MOLE program. So I would thank you, gentlemen, for... Uh, uh, taking heed and um, skirting those issues uh, with, with the public here tonight. Uh, we certainly appreciate that. Um, so I just wanted to uh, briefly mention what you'll find on the website uh, hopefully tomorrow morning, let's say around 8.30, but 
since we do work for the government, give us about an hour or so on either side of that, and uh, we'll make sure that it's there. Um, but we, uh, we did undertake a large effort, uh, about 20,000 plus pages of uh, uh, mold Dorian material, um, and that was about 852 three documents, if I recall correctly. So it was a not a trivial task for us to get that done. Um, you'll find those as well. Uh, gentlemen, you may uh, enjoy going, taking a trip down memory lane and seeing 282 pictures as well. Um, I think some of them um, you, you were in, and uh, many of them I think you'll get a chuckle out of as well. So uh, please, uh, when you get home tomorrow, take a look at them. Um, and let us know what you think, if you would. So um, where you can find those, if you have a program on, on the back of your program, there are several, uh, several links. Um, if you're in the middle section here between the two lines, um, the last HTTP address there, um, which ends with uh, dclass uh, forward slash collections dot HTML, um, that's where you'll find all of the uh, declassified documents as well as the pictures. If you go to the link directly above, above that with the history forward slash index.html, if you don't, you're not lucky enough to get a compendium, uh, that's where you'll find the compendium uh, sometime tomorrow in PDF form as well. So I uh, wanted to uh, make sure everybody knew where to find that information. Um, the other thing I wanted to do, uh, two more things real quickly. The other thing I wanted to do is uh, thank some of our government partners um, who helped make this uh, not only event but the declassifi declassification effort possible. Um, and the first I wanted to thank was our internal uh, NRO partners, as you can imagine, with uh, such a large declassification effort. Um, the declassification office wasn't the only part of the NRO that put, played a part in the process, so we certainly wanted to thank uh, our NRO partners um, uh, from, from back in, in Washington primarily. Um, and also, we wanted to thank our other government partners, and there's one of them running around here tonight, um, the Air Force Declassification Office. Uh, they were a, a, a dream to work with uh, throughout this entire process. Um, most of the information that they had uh, was from the white world and was uh, public knowledge, but they had some other stuff, um, and they were, they, they were uh, really a, a cooperative partner in helping us get through some of the uh, Dorian documents. Um, so we wanted to th make sure we uh, would thank that uh, Air Force Declassification Office, as well as some of our uh, industry partners uh, that we uh, work with. Uh, Aerospace Corporation, we wanted to make sure we, uh, we acknowledge their uh, help in this effort as well. Um, there are 850-some documents that we went through, uh, and they provided uh, tens of those documents. So a, a large number of the collection came from Aerospace Corporation, um, as well as over 200 of the pictures came from Aerospace Corporation as well. Um, unfortunately, uh, they had better record keeping back in those days than, than we did. So, um, and the other uh, uh, corporate uh, partner we wanted to thank uh, real quickly was CACI. Uh, they provided a lot of the, uh, the SMEs, the, the, uh, the subject matter experts, um, to review these documents. We won't mention the ages of those subject matter uh, experts, um, but they certainly uh, played a huge part and uh, making this possible as well. And the last thing that I wanted to mention is uh, uh, Patty mentioned um, that we do do a lot of uh, discretionary release items at the NRO, and I wanted to provide two points of contact. Uh, there's a lot of uh, expertise and knowledge out in this auditorium tonight. Um, if you have an idea for something you would like to see the NRO do in the future regarding a discretionary release uh, topic or program, uh, certainly, we meet several times a year to discuss these and down-select and decide what we're going to do in the future. Uh, we'd certainly love to hear from you if we can do it, and I stress the word can. 
Uh, we will try to do it um, as long as there's enough public interest. So a phone number that may be interesting uh, for you to have to, to send those ideas to is 703-227-9326. Uh, I'll give it to you again, 703-227-9326. And then since we uh, uh, also do a number of different things in that office, uh, there's an email address as well. It's uh, simply foia at nro.mil. So that's F-O-I-A at nro.mil. So thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. Thank you. Two pieces of uh, last business tonight. Uh, Dr. Outsen edited the, uh, the compendium, has an excellent introduction that I recommend you looking at. Uh, uh, James and Patty are going to present a uh, signed copy uh, to each of the uh, panelists, a signed copy of the compendium that has the signature of each of the panelists as well as the editor. Uh, I am also going to present the panelists with a commemorative coin from our NRO directorate. And when we finish that, uh, the general would like to come up and on behalf of the museum uh, make a presentation.